This podcast is a product of the 4th and Inches Network. A podcast network designed to keep Husky fans up to date on their favorite programs around UW. Enjoy the show and go dogs. Go dogs. Go dogs. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. Week two of the college football season is in the books and we're looking ahead to week three. Mark, this weekend was a little bit better for your Ducks, wouldn't you say? I I would say it was settling, Warren. It was, you know, just kind of settled the nerves a little bit, like uh, didn't have to sweat one out. So yeah, it it was nice to have an easy weekend. Seeing those 70 points brings back some memories for me, but uh, I'm sure that this was a nice a nice palate cleanser for you. The Ducks come away with a 70-14 to 14 win against Eastern Washington. Of course, the Dogs also won this weekend, 52-6 to six against Portland State. But let's dive in a little bit to what you saw from uh, the Oregon Ducks this weekend in their win against Eastern Washington. What uh, What about it? Um, gave you reason to believe that things are moving in the right direction? Well, you know, it's always hard to take much away from these matchups with an FCS school because it it seems like there's no way to to pass the test. You can only fail the test. You know, <laughs> if you right. look shaky, uh, then that's used against you. But no matter how well you look, it's what you were supposed to do. And so I think the best thing that I can say about Oregon is they did what they were supposed to do. If Oregon is to be taken seriously as a contender in the Pac-12, they should put away a team as good as Eastern Washington is at their level. They should put them away with ease. And and that's what they did. It was uh, 70 to 14. It was 63 to seven at one point. You know, it was 42 to seven at halftime. So, I mean, it, it was uh, clear from the very first possession, Oregon forced a three and out. I think they held Eastern Washington to negative yardage. Then they scored immediately. They scored on their first, I think, seven drives. So, you know, it was it was exactly what you wanted to see. It's it's nothing to get overly excited about, uh, but it it did kind of um, at least eliminate the worst case scenario from the minds of of Oregon fans. So I know that you're saying that there's there's not a lot you can take away from it. There's nothing to get excited about, but certainly it this game told you something, right? I mean, what 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 do you feel about this team now that maybe you weren't sure if you could feel about them after week one's shellacking by Georgia? Well, I you know, 70 points is not easy to do against anyone. Like, I mean, 70 points is a lot of points. And I think Oregon has only done it uh, four or five times. And, you know, I was going back and looking and it was like, one of those was a team led by Joey Harrington. One of those was uh, the, uh, I think it was the 2010 team that ended up playing Auburn in the national title game. They scored 72 against New Mexico to start their season. Uh, One of them was a Justin Herbert team that ended up going to the Rose Bowl. So, you know, in general, like if you kind of want to, you know, make something of the fact that they scored 70, like it does put them in some company with some other teams uh, that ended up having really great seasons. Now, you know, I don't necessarily want to make that jump right now, but it at least tells me that uh, 
that the capability is there of, of performing at a high level. And, you know, watching, for instance, Bo Nix, uh, you know, now obviously he's not playing the Georgia defense. He's playing the Eastern Washington defense, but he was very efficient, you know, with his passes. I think at one point he was like, you know, 20 of 22 to start the game or, or, or something like that. So that's reassuring to see that, to yeah. see, uh, you know, a quarterback that's, that's hitting guys in stride, that's hitting the open man, to see, you know, the line opening up holes, to see the defense forcing some turnovers, you know, all of that is just, it, it looked more like a functional football team mm -hmm. than what we saw in, in week one. And, you know, I've been saying all along, we're, we're going to know more about them in week three and week four yeah. than we do. Yeah. You know, um, but having said that, like, if this game was like 49 to 35, I would mm -hmm. be coming in here with some red flags raised, you know, right. uh, but the fact that the offense scored just about every time they touched the ball until the very end. And the fact that the defense really, I think the first touchdown that the defense gave up was after a long kickoff return that was then added to that a, a penalty that put Eastern Washington on the plus side of the field before they even snapped the ball. So even, even the one, you know, touchdown they got off the starting defense didn't really feel like a full drive. So all of that was positive. Uh, it remains to be seen how much of a positive sign it, it, it's going to end up becoming. So I think what, you know, what we could probably fairly say thus far is that the Oregon Ducks started the season by playing arguably the best team in the nation. And then their second game, they played, you know, one of the worst teams, at least if you're talking about on the schedule of what they would normally play during the Pac-12 schedule. Uh, Eastern Washington is by far one of the worst teams that are going to play all year long. So now as we kind of calibrate between those two extreme results of getting killed by Georgia, killing Eastern Washington, what is that middle ground that the Oregon Ducks are going to find themselves in? Are they that you know, kind of that, a fifth, a, a like a 15 to 20 in the nation type of team. And, you know, they've kind of been graciously ranked as 25 in the nation going in against BYU. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. So really this week is going to be the first week that we're going to get to see what Oregon looks like against more or less equal competition. And how they do against BYU should say what their run through the Pac-12 will look like for the most part. Yeah, and I think if 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 we're reading the tea leaves from this Eastern Washington game, I here's kind of uh, two things that I think would be interesting to track going forward. One, they continue to rotate four different running backs: Sean Dollars, Marquis Serving, Noah Whittington, Byron Cardwell. They all got between seven and nine carries. Hmm. Uh, they were all you know, active early on in the game. So they kind of, I think, consider all four of them to be starting caliber running backs and they're trying to give them all reps. I'm, I'm just going to be interested to see how long that continues. And if one of those guys eventually kind of starts to get more or less than, than the rest of them. Uh, but the other thing that I think is, is potentially a concern going forward, Warren, is if you look at the receiving stats against Eastern Washington. Bo Nix was 
really efficient. He was 28 of 33, 277 yards, five touchdowns. Okay. But mm-hmm. then if you look at like Troy Franklin led the team with 10 receptions, but that only amounted to 84 receiving yards. Mm. If I tell you that a guy had 10 catches, you probably think he had 140 or 150 yards. Right. To, to get 10 catches and have less than 100 yards receiving is kind of difficult to do. Especially in, in, you know, in a situation where you're playing a, a lower ranked team. That's that's yeah. where I was going with this. I mean, is, those is, numbers, those are the kind of numbers that uh, Deontay Johnson put up with Ben Roethlisberger when Roethlisberger couldn't really get the ball down the field anymore. Exactly, exactly. And Oregon fans were so frustrated last year with Anthony Brown, how hamstrung he was by the play calling that they would not allow him to throw downfield or that he was incapable of throwing downfield, whatever it was. Uh, there was some thought that Kenny Dillingham that that was going to change with him calling the plays. Uh, Obviously they were overmatched against Georgia. Uh, The offense had no trouble putting together drives and scoring against Eastern Washington. So it may be that that's partly just a reflection of, of intent that they just said, we're not going to kind of showcase our downfield passing right now. We're just going to kind of pick them apart um, here and there because we kind of want to keep some things to ourselves about how we're going to attack teams down the field. Uh, but I think for now, it's, it's just something that's just kind of footnote, you know, <laughs> like uh, that they're, they're getting a lot of catches in that 10 to 15 yard range, but not a lot of catches that are going further downfield uh, remains to be seen how much of an issue that that becomes. Absolutely. That is something to keep an eye on. Well, let's uh, kick it back to you here. Uh, the dogs, Last time they played a big sky opponent, uh, it did not go well. There was, I think, uh, a reasonable amount of confidence that this uh, Portland State team was not going to do to Washington what Montana did last year. But uh, what what were your big picture takeaways from the 52-6 to win over the Vikings? Well, once again, we saw that Michael Penix looks like he is an elite quarterback in this system with Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubb. Uh, 20 for 27, uh, 335 yards, 200, uh, two touchdowns, one interception. Um, and, you know, to your point, Mark, this is an offense that is not afraid to to drop off the, 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 the ball to a running back if necessary, but they are pushing the ball down the field as evidenced by um, Jalen McMillan's four catches for 127 yards and a touchdown. One of those being an 85 yard uh, reception, but you know, even Giles Jackson, six receptions for 105 yards uh, with a, a long of 23. So almost, all of his passes were 15 to 20 yards per reception. And um, I think that's that's something that we did not see at all last year. So similar to you, last year, we didn't push the ball down the field much. And when we did, it felt like it was a, a, a breath and a prayer. But this looks like an offense that can surgically make its way down the field. Now, again, to your point, we have not faced equal competition so we're going to find out this weekend what do we do when the the line is bigger and stronger when there's more pressure on the quarterback when the cornerbacks are 
a little taller, a little longer, and the the gaps are not as as wide open. But a couple things that we were looking for that we did see in this game. I, my bold prediction was that I that we were going to get five sacks. We didn't get there. We got four, but um, there was there was good pressure on the quarterback throughout the game. Uh, you know, he threw for 58 yards with a long of 13 yards. One of the things that we were really concerned about with uh, this this quarterback was his rushing ability, and he had seven rushes for five yards. So yeah. that shows that we made some adjustments in our contain with the running quarterback. Um, yeah, 50 yards uh, passing. Their leading rusher had 58 yards rushing. And um, if it were not for the penalties, this would have been a total clampdown by this Husky defense. Unfortunately, we had nine penalties for 90 yards, not all on defense, but uh, that certainly gave them a lot of help getting the ball down the field uh, when a lot of times the defense had, had shut them down. There were a few uh, drops and missed opportunities for Portland State on the offensive side of the ball that, that uh, you know, one of our covers missed a man and, and if not for a drop, it could have resulted in a touchdown. But I think the other thing that I saw that I'm really encouraged by is the rushing game. So against Kent State, we barely eclipsed 100 yards rushing. Uh, but in this game, we had 241 yards rushing, um, 94 yards from our starting running back, Wayne Talapapa, Cam Davis at 70. And then I think probably to the delight of any of the fans that were still in the stadium when the fourth quarter rolled around, Rich Newton comes in and runs like a bat out of hell. I mean, just he looked like Roger Craig, the way that he was pumping his knees and breaking tackles. It was it was fun to see. And uh, if Richard Newton is back and he's healthy, that's a really strong four-man rotation that we've got going with Talapapa, Davis, Newton, and then the mix-up back, Will Nixon. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because the, the rushing stats caught my eye as well. And I was curious uh, kind of how you – you expected that to look in terms of who's going to get the majority of the carries, you know, going forward and, and did Richard Newton do enough to kind of bring himself into that rotation or is he still going to be kind of clearly the backup behind um, I'm going to mispronounce Taula Papa and, and Davis. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know what these coaches are going to do, but I think that, that, what they're likely going to do is they're going to stick with Talapapa and Davis. Um, they're going to, they're going to use those guys as one as a and one B Nixon is that third down uh, change of pace back. He'll get his opportunities. You know, in this game, he had uh, three, three runs and one reception. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see Nixon in a typical, typical game getting, six to eight touches per game. Um, so Davis, Talapapa, those are going to be the guys that I think get the, the major run, especially in the first three quarters, where I think uh, 
Richard Newton could really be effective is bringing him in at the end of the third quarter and into the fourth quarter when the defense is tired and they're not quite as excited about um, you know, tackling a freight train and let him really run out the clock, pick out, pick a, a couple drives where they just put him in and just say, hammer away. And, um, you know, maybe he breaks some tackles. Maybe he gets uh, a four and a half yard run. Whereas in the first quarter, that's only a two and a half yard run. Uh, but it does enough to keep the chains moving. Sure, sure. Well, Warren, I, I think you've got to be as encouraged as you could be coming through two games of the Kalen DeBoer era. I mean, when we looked at the schedule, it was, it, you know, Kent State and Portland State. We knew that that probably wasn't going to offer a lot of challenges if if Washington was, in fact, a functional football team this year, unlike they were last year. And so Washington has outscored them 97 to 26, you know, over two games. And sure enough, like they look like a very functional competitive football team that, that has their, their sights set on bigger things. And they did exactly to Kent state and Portland state, what you would expect a good team would do. And just after the, you know, the trauma of last season, do you find yourself just kind of breathing a sigh of relief and kind of saying, okay, like I can at least move forward now into the heat of the schedule thinking that we have something to offer, that it's not some sort of lost cause that last year was, but that this team is going to, to be competitive. Absolutely. I mean, we all expected that we were going to be two and O, but we've seen teams we've seen husky teams that squeak by a kent state yeah squeak by and you know keep it close with portland state into the late third quarter and you're pulling out your hair going we should be killing these guys but either lack of execution or uh mistakes just cause them to to keep them in the game but i think what we're seeing is a team that is both explosive and efficient and that portends to the likelihood that this is a good team and uh you know they're putting up 50 points in a row uh, two times two games in a row like you said putting up 70 is not easy no matter who it's against getting over 50 points two weeks in a row is not easy no matter who it's against now we face michigan state and we get to see what these boys are really made of now, hold on. You had 45 against Kent State. Let's not get carried away, oh, Warren. Thank you. Thank you. You're right. You're right. Uh, I did. I, I I misspoke. 97 points total in two games. Correct. So, yeah. Yeah. Point point taken, though. Point taken. Yes. It, it easily could have been more than 50, but we took the foot off the gas in the end of the third quarter. Sure. But, yeah, to your point. Well, so, Warren, so, I think. Yeah, let's, let's look ahead then. I think, I think we've kind of you know, uh, Oregon beat the dead horse of Eastern Washington, Washington beat the, the dead horse of Portland state. Let's quit beating those horses. And let's look ahead to a couple of really compelling matches matchups for both teams this weekend. Uh, you know, starting off with Oregon, number 25, Oregon versus number 12 BYU. And then, uh, Washington, against number 11, Michigan State. Honestly, Mark, 
it just it kind of surprised me to see that Michigan State and BYU were so similarly ranked. I, I actually expected that BYU would be a few slots down from Michigan State, but I think that says a lot about um, you know what what they've done these first couple of weeks. Yeah, I think you know honestly, objectively, I think. Washington hosting Michigan State is the best game of the weekend. It's the marquee game of the weekend, and it's in that 4.30 time slot because of it. And I think I think Oregon hosting BYU is the second best game of the weekend. If we're just kind of talking what's on the line for the, for the teams involved, I mean, two really good teams going on the road into hostile environments, a lot at stake, obviously, for both of our teams. Uh, and, yeah, if you compare it to, you know, there's, a handful of other of other games that are similarly compelling but i would say that that these two stuck out to me as i think the two games and i i think game day probably would have come to seattle if uh if they didn't want to go to appalachian state which is where they're going this week i think just to kind of have some fun with the mountaineers uh but but i think if they were picking the the most interesting game on the schedule i i think it's washington hosting michigan state and i think oregon hosting byu is not far behind i think uh it's going to it's going to tell us so much about both both right. of our teams to play teams of this caliber now with this oregon byu game obviously every do- every oregon fan would have been head over heels in, if the ducks had beaten georgia in game 1 but this game feels like a game that Oregon really needs to win to be the Oregon that they believe that they can be for this season. So with that being said, do you think that this game carries more weight than the Georgia game? Yes. Yes. And I've, and I've felt that way all throughout the offseason. I mean, I felt like the Georgia game was a very good measuring stick and and that um there was a huge opportunity with the georgia game you know there was an opportunity to perhaps go in and and you know show that you belong on that stage and and get a win over a great team and all that uh but i feel like the pressure is on the byu is on this is on, on this byu game it's dan lanning's first like real home game you know if you if you exclude eastern washington at, you know yeah. at FDS school to clarify, are you saying that the pressure is on Oregon? Hundred percent. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Like I, I think I think when I looked at the schedule, that's the game that I circled because most teams have the one marquee non-conference game that you kind of right. know is is a big swing. And it's like we might not get that one, but we're gonna we're gonna take our shot at it. This is the second game for Oregon, you know, like right. and and it's a game that um technically is is the type of of game that a team like Oregon should win uh but BYU has had such a resurgence here these last few years that this isn't you know the BYU of of four or five years ago uh this is a BYU team that that is to really I think be taken seriously they just beat Baylor who's a top 10 team and the defending big 12 champs and they beat them in double overtime so I think there's a, a lot of pressure on Oregon to to be up for the challenge of of playing this BYU team. Yeah, and and this is a team that is not like the you know the the BYUs of yesteryear, which were 
you know, more finesse, more pass, you know, heavy kind of a system with Lavelle Edwards that, you know, you could kind of just plug and play, uh, you know, a quarterback who, who was accurate and they would pile up yards. This is more of a, uh, a tough minded, physical, defensive oriented type of football team under Kalani Sataki. Um, how do you think Oregon is going to match up to that style of football that BYU is playing now? Uh, that's the million dollar question is can Oregon match BYU's physicality? I mean, I, I put down three questions here is kind of my three biggest. That's by far my biggest one. And if you think back throughout the Mario Cristobal era, Mario being a former offensive lineman himself, he, he talked a pretty big game about kind of turning Oregon into a more physical team. And there were flashes of that in certain games, but overall, I'm not sure that vision really bore itself out. And it certainly didn't bear itself out at the end of last season against Utah in particular, when Oregon really got whipped at the line of scrimmage in, in both of those games. And you know, BYU is a team in the last few years that's really hung well with Utah in, in that regard. And I think compares compares well, you know, to Utah in terms of, of how they're constructed. And so this is this is going to be a huge challenge. You know, you, other than Utah, you might say this is the most physical team left on Oregon's schedule and the team uh, most capable of, of really controlling the line of scrimmage against them. So I think if, if Oregon can pass that test and, and be kind of the tougher team, it really bodes well for the rest of the season. Um, but it's, it's, it's definitely the thing I'm going to be watching closest in the first quarter of kind of, okay, are we getting that push? Are we getting defensive linemen into the backfield? Are we opening up some holes on the offensive side? Uh, I actually thought, Oregon's lines held up pretty well against Georgia. That was one of the few mm -hmm. spots where I felt like, yeah, that, you know, they don't look totally overmatched at the line of scrimmage. I thought it was on the perimeter that they got exposed time and time again in that game. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to see how, how that part of the game unfolds. So, yeah, I think um, they're, they're going to bring that physicality. Um, they've got, you know, tell me what you, what your observations have been about this quarterback and this offense for BYU. Well, I, I can tell you that uh, BYU was missing their, their top two receivers. Uh, one of whom is a Husky transfer, right? Puka Nakua. Is he and, out? Um, I don't know. I don't know if what their status is for the Oregon game, but he, and then the Romney kid um, were both out for the Baylor game. Okay. And there was a point where BYU needed a touchdown in order to, you know, stay alive in that game. And Jaron Hall made some great throws and one of them to like a freshman receiver that he hit on a crossing pattern. And uh, it, it very much looked like J uh, Jaron Hall was still in control of the game and able to get the ball where he needed to despite the fact that his two best receivers were not playing. And so I think, uh, you know, he's a, they, they were supposed to kind of take a step back when they lost Zach Wilson to the NFL a couple of years, but Jaron Hall has stepped in and, and done very, very well. And I think 
there's every reason to expect he's he's going to be up for the challenge of playing in this hostile environment. All right. So what about the the Oregon quarterback, Bo Nix? Um, he certainly was efficient against um, against Eastern Washington. You can't complain when a guy passes for you know more than 80% completes 80% or more of his passes and has five touchdowns never going to complain about that uh but you know will he be able to get away with that against a BYU defense and you know where is that explosive offense going to come from if not from uh Bo Nix yeah i think uh it seems like for Nix you know, the challenge is, can he remain re within the offense? That's what Dan Lanning said about him at, at the Eastern Washington game is he said he remained within the offense when he got into trouble into the Auburn game. It was when he was trying to force balls where he shouldn't. And the Georgia BYU, or the Auburn game or the I mean, Georgia game. I'm sorry. Uh, he's an Auburn kid. Yeah. Um, but, you know, thinking about BYU is, is a smart defense. They're going to have guys in the right position, you know, all game long. Yeah, um, they're going to force you to to execute, and so you know for Bo Nix that may mean a lot of seven or eight yard passes, you know, and it may mean a, a patience to kind of work your way down the field to take what the defense gives you to keep the chains moving. I think his his legs could really be an asset because he is the type that can take a broken play and and pick up fifteen yards on the ground and 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 get a big first down when he needs to in, in scramble mode. So, you know, my, my hope for, for Bo is just, um, is that he plays within himself, that he takes care of the ball, that he doesn't turn the ball over, that he trusts the game plan and, and that he, he doesn't, you know, try to kind of overextend himself too much. And I think if, if he can do those things, then Oregon should be in a big position, you know, uh, but my, my concern is that if if maybe if things don't get off to a, a quick start, uh, that he he pushes a little bit and that just kind of makes things worse. You can tell I don't have the same level of confidence in Bo Nix that you have in Michael Penix, Warren. <laughs> well, maybe I'm just continuing to you know drink from the the fountain of perpetual optimism, but yeah, I I do feel good about it. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about this Husky game against Michigan state 4 30 PM at, uh, you know, the university of Washington stadium, I'm going to be there. And my wife and I are going with my, uh, sister and brother-in-law who is a Michigan state alumni. So that's going to be a lot of fun to enjoy that game together, uh, with the four of us. But I think we're anticipating that this is going to be a sold out game. Hopefully everybody that bought a ticket comes into the stadium and cheers. That can be a problem sometimes at Husky stadium, but the atmosphere should be electric for this game because this is potentially the biggest opportunity to, to win a game like this in 20 years, Mark. Um, it's been since 2001 that we've beaten a ranked out of conference opponent in Husky stadium. So okay, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I had marked down biggest home game since 2016 versus Stanford when Stanford was right. top team Huskies obliterated Stanford. That was kind of the coming out party for that Washington team that ended up in the playoff. But I, 
I was curious about the stat that you just named because I was like, when is the last time that they've had a and and I guess it would have to be what the the Rick Neuheisel era is what you're talking Correct. about. Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah. That's a long time. That's, That's a, a long, long time. time. So yeah, you know, this this game has the potential to be a program defining uh game for you know Kalen DeBoer and this new era of Husky football. Something that even Chris Peterson wasn't able to accomplish, not completely by his own doing because of the scheduling that takes place before he, he arrived. But but this is still uh, a really exciting opportunity for Husky football. And as such, I think that there is a level of pressure. But Michigan State is the ranked team here. Washington is not ranked, which is exactly the way that I wanted it. I wanted this to be an opportunity for the Huskies to play the underdog against Michigan State. And um, I think they're going to come out really, really excited to to play their best ball. And the maturity of Penix, who has already played against Michigan State two separate times, I think that's going to be the key to keeping this team really from that energy getting out of control. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm excited to see it's this will tell us a lot about this team. If we win this game, if we start three zero, I think at that point, Husky fans are going to realistically begin to imagine a nine, 10 game win, you know, nine, 10 or win uh, game season. So, so that would exceed most expectations from most reasonable fans if we get this three and oh win so let me ask you i i mean i think i've i've tried to be objective uh with my thoughts about the huskies coming into this season i've i've been on record saying i thought the kalen DeBoer hire was a great hire i've been on record saying i think michael Penix is kind of the greatest unknown um you know that he should be getting more attention than he is that that he's the greatest unheralded quarterback in the pac-12 uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic about the Huskies chances overall in the season and, and in this game in particular. Uh, but I do have, I have, I have two questions and they're kind of similar questions to what we had with the BYU game. Uh, and that has to do with the line of scrimmage. Yeah. Michigan state, uh, leads the nation in sacks. Now, granted they've played Western Michigan and Akron. So, you know, who knows what to do with that, but in general, uh, this is a team that over the years has taken a lot of pride in a tough physical brand of football. So they lead the nation in sacks on defense. Uh, they've run for uh, 197 yards in their first game, 260 yards and six rushing touchdowns against Akron in their second game uh, while holding Akron to just 22 yards rushing. So they have absolutely dominated the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball uh, through two weeks. And that is par for the course with Michigan state from what we've seen, not just in the Mel Tucker era, but even going back to the Mark D'Antonio era, this, this is Michigan state football. Yeah. And the Huskies as, as, you know, as, as kind of fun as these first two games have been, I am thinking back to last year and thinking back to some of their games against teams like Michigan mm. or Oregon or some of the better teams that Washington had to play. And they really got worked up front. In, yeah. a, in a significant way how are you feeling about that 
aspect of things where it's kind of easy to uh, to connect the dots and to say we brought a new quarterback in mm-hmm. capable of, of jump-starting things in the passing game. We've got a coach that's bringing a different schematic philosophy and everything. But ultimately, in terms of like, are our guys up front as tough as they need to be yeah. to win a game like this against a really tough team? What's what's your feeling about that? Yeah, I love the the way that one of our uh, Husky players, I can't remember, I think it might have been Michael Penix, but but somebody asked him a question about last year's team, and he just looked at him and he said, we're not that team. <laughs> and um, that was, he just left it at that. And, uh, you know, I think that really is true. Now, let's talk about the Husky offensive line protecting Michael Penix from by far the best defensive line that we're, we're going to face uh, this season, or pr- at least thus far. So thus far, Penix has not been sacked once and has had very little pressure on him in the pocket at all. One of the reasons for that is redshirt fresh freshman Roger Rosengarten has graded out by PFF as the number one tackle in the nation thus far in terms of his uh, grade at uh, right tackle. So, so that's a big deal that we're getting really good protection from the offensive line thus far, and that's not considering that Jackson Kirkland has not played yet, and he is expected to start this Saturday against Michigan State. All of our offensive linemen thus far have remained healthy. So that's another uh, positive for the Huskies. Obviously, that's the goal. You don't want to lose a starter in the first couple weeks and then face a team that's notorious at, at rushing the ball. So I feel good about... Number one, Penix's ability to check out of dangerous uh, defensive situations, the offensive line's health, and the, the ability that they've shown thus far to protect the quarterback. Whether or not they can get it done on the ground, that is another question. But I think they're going to do a reasonable job protecting Penix in the pocket. On the defensive side, that is the question you were asking. How does this team compare to last year's team? Well, for one, it is a totally different defensive scheme. One thing that you're not going to see this year that you saw all last year was uh, safeties 25 yards off the ball. This is not (laughs) happening now. These safeties are coming up, which which is creating the opportunity of being exposed downfield. But... Mark, this quarterback, as good as he is, has thrown some interceptions. Yeah. He threw two interceptions last week uh, against Akron, uh, a team that really he shouldn't have had that kind of inefficiency against. Plus, as good as he is, he's not a mobile quarterback. So if we can get pressure on the quarterback, and uh, one of our starting quarterbacks, Jordan Perryman, is projected to come back this week if we can provide decent decent coverage on the wide receivers i like our chances to produce some explosive negative plays whether it's sacks interceptions um i think they're going to they're going to stack the box they're going to rush the quarterback 
and they're going to make Michigan beat them, Michigan State beat them through the air. And I think that that plays into the hands of what uh, the Huskies want to do and what Michigan State really doesn't want to do. Well, it'll be it'll be very interesting to see. Uh, I mean, really, how these line of scrimmage battles play out in, in both of our games. Uh, one note about the the Michigan State rushing attack: uh, Jarek Broussard is one of their. Yes, backs. I'm and glad you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah Pac-12 fans may remember him. He was the 2020 Offensive Player of the Year for Colorado. I believe he has torn the ACL in both of his knees. Mm -hmm. And so he's had some really bad injury luck. He has now resurfaced uh, at Michigan state. And I believe he's basically the backup there to a guy named Jalen Berger, who is a transfer from Wisconsin, who always produces great running backs as well. So they've got a couple, a couple of real backs there, you know, when you're back running back. These guys are one a and one a. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I could be wrong on this Mark, but, if my memory serves me correctly, Bruce, uh, Jarek Broussard's knee injuries were pre 2020. So he had his, his offensive, uh, you know, PAC 12 offensive player of the year with Mel Tucker in 2020, Mel Tucker leaves. Things don't go well for, for Colorado in 2021. And Broussard doesn't match that offensive explosiveness that he had with uh, Mel Tucker and the the Buffaloes in 2020 leaves to go rejoin Tucker in, in Michigan state and his explosive game has come back. So those guys are dangerous. And I think uh, any Husky fan that has not done taken a moment to, to look at what Michigan state has on offense, they might easily say, Oh, well, they don't have Ken Walker anymore they're not going to be that good. And that is absolutely not the case. Maybe Jalen Berger and Jarek Broussard are not going to be first or second round draft picks in the NFL draft, but these guys are high quality, top notch running backs that in that system are going to be very successful. Those guys, if they don't crack a thousand, both of them combined are going to probably run for 16 to 1800 yards this year so it's a very dynamic rushing offense well and to put it this way their third string running back is a guy named elijah collins who was a senior a fifth year senior and when he was a freshman in 2019 he had over a thousand yards from scrimmage for michigan state so he's a thousand yard back that is basically struggling to get carries behind broussard and Berger. so they they are a stable of running backs that Michigan State has. And it's it's going to be really fun to see, you know, how, how the Huskies uh, stack up against, against a rushing attack like that. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, we both watched the, the Seahawks against, uh, you know, Russell Wilson and the Denver Broncos last night, and we saw the power of the 12th man. Yeah. You know, we saw the power of a raucous home crowd that rattles uh, the the visiting team. And, you know, that's how Washington beat Miami all those years ago when they came stacked with all that talent. And that's what this crowd is going to need to do this sun, this Saturday against Michigan State. We need the, the home field 
to be an advantage. We need Husky Stadium to to rock like it did against Stanford in 2016. I was at that game, and you know the Husky players that played in that game, they look back and they say that was one of the greatest experiences of my life playing in Husky Stadium in front of a sold out 72,000 fans that were blowing the the doors down and Stanford played their worst game of the year. Christian McCaffrey was on that team. He didn't do jack squat against that Husky defense because there was so much pressure coming from every direction. So that brings me to the million dollar question here, Warren. Both our teams are playing at home. Both of them right now are listed as three and a half point favorites against undefeated teams ranked in the top 15 in the country. When we went through the schedules at the beginning of the year, uh, you circled this Michigan State game as a loss for Washington. And I agreed with you. Uh, have you reconsidered? Uh, now going into the game, they're a three and a half point favorite. Are you, uh, are you predicting a Washington win? I, at this point, I have no choice but to predict a Washington win. <laughs> I mean, if, if Vegas is giving a three-point line to a team that's unranked playing against the number 11 team in the nation, yeah, tell, that tells you something. I mean, that's, that's pretty unheard of, really, yeah. when you stop to think about it. So it says a lot about what Las Vegas thinks about this Washington Husky team. And I see it too. I, I think it too. So I'm, I'm going to go out there. I am going to predict a win in my mind. Um, you know, I've been thinking that this is a Husky team that really needs to score about 30 points a game in quality competition in order to have a, a significant chance of winning. I don't think this is going to be a defense that, you know, holds teams to 10 or 13 points. So I am going to predict a Husky win 30 to 27, the dogs at home. Um, it's going to be tight. It's going to be tough. But if, uh, if the dogs can play with the kind of poise that they've shown thus far, I think that they've got the tools to come out with the win at home in front of a raucous Husky crowd. I love it. I love it. Uh, I'm actually, I'm going to make history here, Warren. I, I'm in a kind of a competition with some guys, a couple of whom are mutual friends, uh, where we, we pick games every week. We pick the winners of, you know, a handful of games and we keep track over the course of the year. And there's a trophy that gets passed around for whoever wins. And, I, ever since we've started doing this, maybe 10 years ago, I have picked Washington to lose every time they've come up. And every time they've been in a marquee game, I've picked against them to lose, primarily because most of the guys in this group are Husky fans. Right. And it's a chance to make up points. You know, it's a chance yeah. to steal some points from them. Uh, I'm actually picking Washington this week. For the first time ever, I'm going to pick, I'm wow. going to pick them in part because they're the underdog and there are some bonus points that I can accrue from, from picking the underdog. Um, and I don't want to lose out on the possibility of that. Uh, 
to my uh, my fellow competitors, but also because I I I've had a feeling about this Husky team all season, and uh, I don't necessarily like that feeling as a Duck fan, uh, but I'm going to be faithful to that feeling in, in this moment. I too uh, am, am predicting a, a Husky victory, although I don't think it's going to be as high scoring as you're indicating. I think it's I think it's going to be in the low twenty. I'm thinking twenty three to twenty, some, something in 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 that ballpark. Okay. Okay. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Uh, a duck has picked the dogs to win against Michigan State. And, um, you know, will that prove to be a curse on the dogs? Or I would love nothing more. <laughs> no, this... I actually, I generally, I want Washington to win this game too, because I, I, I want Washington to have the best possible record when Oregon plays them. Right. Um, because that, that works out better either way. Either that means we get to beat a really good Washington team, or if Oregon loses, they've lost to a really good Washington team. I would take no, you know, much less delight in beating a five and three Washington. Like I want them, if they're right. undefeated, that would be perfect, you know, as far yeah. as Oregon is concerned. Right. And so, um, so I'm, yeah, in, in some way, I'm rooting for the Huskies. Now, if, if Michigan state starts pouring it on, I will immediately flip that switch and revel in, you know, the destruction. Uh, but, but for now I'm, I'm optimistic about the Huskies chances. All right. Well, let's talk about the, the ducks versus BYU. Do you have a prediction? Um, do you have a, a feeling about the ducks chances to win this weekend? The last time Oregon hosted BYU was 1990 and there was a turning point in the rich Brooks regime. They'd gone to BYU in 1989 and they lost a thriller 45 to 41. Uh, the ducks blew a 17 point lead. You can go on YouTube and literally find five or six videos of blown calls uh, that led to this BYU comeback with the announcers blatantly kind of saying like, and the refs have blown another one. Like uh, it's great. They met the next year in 1990 BYU came in ranked fourth in the country. Oregon basically spent the entire off season preparing for BYU because they were so furious about the way the season before it ended. And Ty Detmer mm. was the quarterback for BYU in that game. He threw for 442 yards but Oregon sacked him five times. They picked him off five times. He would go on to win the Heisman, but he lost that game to Oregon 32 to 16. That's the last time they've played together in Autzen Stadium. They've played one other time since. That was in a bowl game where BYU crushed Oregon and almost drove Mike Bellotti to retirement. It ended up driving Mike Bellotti to hire Chip Kelly, which then turned around Oregon's fortunes again. So, so there is some kind of some weird history here where BYU games have been an interesting turning point uh, in the program, in the Oregon program, both in the, in the Rich Brooks era, in the Mike Bellotti era. I think it's going to be the same in the Dan Lanning era. I think this is uh, kind of the plant a flag in the ground. We're going to see what kind of, of team we've got in this game. I think Oregon's going to come ready to play. I think the crowd's going to be electric. I think they're going to match BYU up front with physicality. And I think, I think they're going to come away with, you know, we'll, we'll call it a, a 27 to 23 victory. Okay. 
So again, also a fairly low scoring game, kind of in that mid range. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Oregon. Uh, I, for, well, I mean BYU only gave up twenty to Baylor, and I don't think Oregon's gonna have a whole lot more firepower than that against against right. a pretty good BYU defense. So I think if they can get into the high twenties, they should they should have a shot. Um. So we'll yeah we'll see. So Mark, um, I'm trying to go back and remember. Let's see. I predicted a loss against BYU. Yes, you did. I also predicted a loss against Georgia. Um, so, you know, looking at this game now, two games in, I'm going to stick with my original prediction. I, I think BYU is coming into this game really, I think, feeling like they're the ones that have something to prove. Um, I think, like you said, Oregon is feeling a lot of pressure because this is really the first test and first opportunity to prove that uh, they are a decent team under Dan Lanning at home. And um, I'm not fully convinced about Bo Nix. You know, I think He's certainly shown that he can uh, be uh, efficient with the short-range passing, but can he make the clutch plays? That That's really, for me, what it comes down to is, does Bo Nix have that clutch bone in him that, like, when the team really needs him to convert on third and long or fourth and short, that he's the guy that can get it done? Like Anthony Brown did it last year. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think Anthony Brown gets enough credit for his ability to make the plays at the right time. Uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say that I think this is going to be a BYU win. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go uh 28 BYU to 24 um Oregon. And um, I don't think it's gonna be an embarrassment for Oregon. I, I think, you know, Oregon fans will look at this game and say, you know what, we, we, we showed that we can play at this level. We just weren't quite ready for it. So I don't think this is going to be a fire Dan Lanning kind of a experience, but, <laughs> but I think that between the coaching uh, experience disparity and again, just, not quite being convinced about what you know what the offense can do and what the defense can do against upper level competition. I'm I'm going with B, BYU. And BYU's, I mean, they've been tested already and they've come out on top. So, you know, they're they're a little bit more battle ready for this game, in my opinion. Well, there you have it, folks. You've got uh, a duck showing uncommon, uh, <laughs> uncommon decency uh, towards the Huskies. And uh, no, I, I think, uh, I think your skepticism is warranted, Warren. And there's a sense in which I'm still talking myself into this Oregon team. And when when we do the recap next week, yeah, you know, uh, I may be kind of sitting here, kind of trying to put the pieces back together. Um, 
because I, I do think uh, objectively I have more confidence in the Huskies right now than, than the Ducks. Uh, but, I, but I also think that's the type of thing that could, I could be feeling different about that six minutes into the Oregon-BYU game. I could be all the way in on, on this Oregon team. So I think I just, I just have to wash the taste of Georgia out of my mouth, and that's not going to happen until they kick off on Saturday. Well, there's no doubt about it. If, if, if Oregon does win and they beat BYU, then I think Duck fans can feel pretty confident about the rest of the season. Um, if they lose, it doesn't mean that they're not going to be able to pull together a good season um, from here on out. It won't reach the elite status that maybe they had hoped for, but even starting out one and two, there's no reason why Oregon couldn't finish nine and three. Um, so I think I think just keeping that perspective in mind that they they front loaded their season with perhaps the two best teams on their schedule, and uh, you know the rest of the 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 you know the Pac-12 season may or may not be easier for Oregon depending on what they learn from these first two games. Obviously, not counting Eastern Washington, first two out of three games. Yeah. All right. Well, let's um, let's wrap it up. Just a little bit of a roundup from last week. The best Pac-12 game of the weekend was definitely Washington State's stunning upset of Wisconsin, uh, 17-14 on the road at Camp Randall, uh, defeating number 19 ranked Wisconsin. Uh, Cam Ward still not looking super impressive back there as the, um, you know, somehow potential Heisman candidate going in to the season, but yeah. they found a way to win. They got the turnovers that they needed. They did catch some pretty lucky breaks in this game and uh, they came out ahead. Oregon state with a tremendous win over Fresno state. And, uh, you know, we love those plucky beavers, uh, <laughs> you know, but they're doing it. I mean, how can you not be a fan of Jonathan Smith and what he's doing with Oregon state right now? Uh, and, and really they're playing, they're playing above what anybody's expecting thus far. Well, and they won this game with Fresno where Jonathan Smith had the decision to either kick a field goal and force overtime or go for the touchdown and the win on the final play of the game. And they went for the win and they scored. And that's the type of thing that can galvanize a team because their coach has belief in them. He put it all on the line and trusted them. And, you know, the Beavers have got to just be kind of overflowing with, with confidence after the way they've played against Boise state and, and Fresno state, you know, I don't think anybody in the Pac-12 has two better wins right now than Oregon State has. No, without a doubt, without a doubt. Uh, the the Pac-12 head-to-head matchup, USC versus Stanford. We knew Stanford wasn't that good. Uh, they do have a good quarterback in Tanner McKee. Um, they put up some points in the fourth quarter to make it look closer than it really was, but USC wins 41-28. to 28. And uh, they look like a team that is definitely a, a force on offense. They've been able to capitalize on some really opportune uh, turnovers, especially interceptions. Whether or not they can keep that kind of 
momentum going on defense remains to be seen, but this is an obviously improved USC team. Arizona State, I was really hoping that they would be able to, to represent the Pac-12 well, well in their matchup with Oklahoma State, but unfortunately, just not a lot, not enough guns to get it done. Um, they lost 34 to 17. And then uh, Arizona going up against Mike Leach and Mississippi State. And uh, we thought Arizona was maybe looking better this year. Only time will tell, but they lose pretty handily 39 to 17. Yeah, the only thing I would add is, uh, you know, regarding the the USC Stanford game is Stanford moved the ball effectively all game. They they had over 440 yards of offense, which was almost as many as USC had, but they turned the ball over five times and USC yeah. didn't turn the ball over at all. We've talked about USC getting the three pick sixes against Rice. So their turnover margin is insane to start the year. Uh, but I do think you know, to flag that yardage number that if they're giving up, uh, you know, 450 yards of offense to, to a Stanford offense, that's okay. Um, I think that there's going to be some opportunities for other PAC 12 teams to, to move the ball on them. I don't know how anybody's going to stop them, but I think there is some vulnerability there with uh, USC's defense. I agree. And I think it also should serve as a pretty good warning to Huskies and Ducks that Stanford is a team that could end up upsetting some teams this year, um, even if their record overall is not that good. So don't take Stanford lightly. They can move the ball, like you said, and uh, they do have a good quarterback and they've got a good coach. And that can be a pretty dangerous recipe for upsets if you're not uh, fully prepared for the Stanford Cardinal. Well, Mark, uh, we're going to wrap it up, but uh, as we do, uh, any final thoughts about, you know, this upcoming weekend, maybe if there's a, a game that sticks out to you or, you know, something that you're really excited to see looking ahead to this weekend. Well, Warren, we, we've both got uh, new coaches kind of coaching our team now in, in Oregon's case, like a brand new head coach, you know, you've mentioned how the experience factor could be an issue. I think my hope for each of us and our head coaches is that they, they manage the game better than Nathaniel Hackett did for the Denver Broncos mm -hmm. last night against the Seahawks. Uh, for anybody watching that game, um, to, to see the Broncos attempt a 64-yard field goal instead of going for it on fourth and five when they had all of their timeouts and they have Russell Wilson, the $225 million quarterback, and instead, they try to kick one of the longest field goals of all time. Uh, not in the mile high air, mind you. Mm -hmm. uh, just an abomination in terms of, of uh, coaching malpractice and uh, a thrilling, thrilling win for the Seahawks, you know, forcing multiple fumbles at the goal line. Uh, they, they just kind of did just enough to, to beat Russ and the Broncos. But I, I desperately hope to see... Um, Dan Lanning and Kalen DeBoer uh, put together better coaching stints on Saturday than, than we saw from Nathaniel Hackett on that final drive. Point well taken. Everybody was paying attention to the Russell versus Geno storyline, and rightly so. Not nearly enough attention to the Hackett versus Carroll storyline. Yeah. And Carroll flat out 
out-coached Hackett and coached circles around him. And that was the difference in the game. And I think it's a great reminder that talent is great, but coaching is also very important and you can't replace experience. So will that be a factor this weekend for the Ducks? Time will tell. Will that be a factor for the Dogs? Time will tell. But I think that's a good uh, send-off for us. So with that, I'll say to all my dog fans out there, be there at Husky Stadium. Be loud. It's a purple out. Be ready. Go dogs. And for all my duck fans, go ducks. We'll catch you next time.